Thank you for listening to the weekly message from Trinity of Fairview. Here's Pastor Stacy Harris. Catalyst, we're kicking off this brand new series. I hope you have a place you can take notes on our, our handout, our bulletin on the back. There's a place you can write a few things down. We need to start with our premise. Why, why here? Why start talking about things like catalysts and scientific experiments and what happens in chemistry? I was never good at chemistry and uh, didn't do too well. I found out that if you were there for class, you would do a whole lot better. I mean, y'all, hey, hey, I found that out. I uh, just never really endeared myself to it very much. But chemically speaking, a catalyst is the difference maker. And that's what made the difference in what you saw here today. A catalyst is defined this way. This is the premise of our series. A catalyst is a substance. A substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction without itself undergoing any permanent chemical change. In other words, the catalyst itself isn't consumed in the reaction. It's just a stimulus. It's just a spark. It's just a spur, if you will. It's something that advances the reaction along at a much speedier rate. For something was going on already. It was just happening so slowly that you really couldn't see it. And when you introduce that catalyst into it, man, everything begins to step up. The volume goes up. The speed goes up. And the reaction occurs much more quickly, giving us a, a pretty visible and an evident result. So the question came to my mind. It came to my mind. If this is true in the chemical, the physical world which we live in, can it be true in the spiritual world? Can it be true that in the spiritual realm that there are certain things that can enhance or speed up or spark or stimulate the work of God that's going on inside me? Is there something in the spiritual realm that can make this happen? So that's the premise of this series. And if we say that there are, then the question becomes this. This is our press. If we say that it's possible in the spiritual realm to have these things, then we need to ask ourselves, an educated person, a thinking person would say, if this is true, man, what are those things? If it's true that there are things out there will enhance and speed up and intensify the work of God in my life, man, it would do me good to know what those things are. And man, I'll tell you this, if there's something out there that enhances my spiritual experience with the Lord, if there's something that turns up the volume, that makes me know more of His power, His authority, His person, His presence, and His plan in my life, I'm here to tell you that I want those things in my life. In the next six weeks, we'll look at a few of these things, these things that I call spiritual catalysts, and we'll ask what they are and examine each and every one of them. Thirdly, We've seen our premise. We've seen our, our press. What are these things? There are things that will enhance our experience. I want you to see our presuppositions. Anytime you come to something, you come with presuppositions. And as we come to this series, I want you to know that there are two that I'll repeat over and over again that I, I presuppose. Number one is this. I presuppose that the mighty power of God is always at work. I believe that God is always at work. I don't believe He's ever idle. I don't believe he's ever standing by on the outside. I believe he's always at work doing something in your life and in my life and in this world as we know it today. 
As I come to this, I come with that presupposition that not just any power, but the mighty power of God. Luke 9, 43a will be our base text, and we'll refer to that. It's printed in your bulletin. It reads this way. They were amazed. That means they were astounded by the mighty power of God at work in and around them. Well, you say, what was going on? What was the Lord doing? Well, we look at the previous 42 verses in Luke chapter 9, and we see some pretty powerful things that were happening in their midst. Number one, we see Jesus giving unto his disciples all of his power and all of his authority. Authority over devils, authority to cure diseases, authority to preach, authority to teach, authority to heal. And then he sent them out, and the word tells us they did just that. And they came back amazed at the mighty power of God that was work inside them. They saw Jesus. They saw him preach. They saw him heal. They saw him take a crowd of 5,000 out on a hillside. And you biblical scholars, all he had was, what, five loaves and how many fish? Two fish. And the word says, man, he took that meager offering and he broke it and enabled 5,000 people to eat just through his mighty power and authority in a miracle of what I would call expansion, taking a little something and making a whole lot out of it. And the word tells us that he didn't just feed them to the full, but that after they were done, he sent some people up to collect the scraps. How much did they collect? Twelve baskets full of leftovers. Now, by any estimation at all, that's a mighty move of the power of God in your midst. Any way that you think of it, we see him charge his disciples to follow him daily, deny themselves, and take up his cross and walk after him. Then we see Jesus lead them up a mountain to pray. And there on that Mount of Transfiguration, we see him in all of his unbridled glory for who he really is in his power and in his authority alongside Moses and alongside Elijah. And everyone that was there heard the voice of God himself saying, Boys, this is my son. Pay attention to what he has to say. And there they saw the glory, the might, the brightness, the power of God unbridled right in their very midst. We see Jesus lead them back down that hill and his feet no, no sooner hit the foot of the mountain than we see a man bringing his child to him, possessed of a demon and sick. We see Jesus miraculously and mightily cast out the demon from him and restore and heal that child and give him back to his father, restore him to his family. And 943a says they saw this in the space of just a little under two weeks. They saw God do all these things and they marveled. They stood in a Amazement at the mighty power of God that was at work in them, around them, and through them. Man alive, they had to be asking themselves just what I was thinking. The mighty power of God is always at work, but they had to be thinking this second presupposition is I want that power loose in me to the uttermost. Man, that's what I want to see God doing. That's how I want to see God acting in my life, working according to his plan, his purpose for his glory to be sure it always will be. But I want to see his power loose and operating in me at max potential at any given moment. If I were to ask you, how many of you guys really want to see the power of God loose in your life and operating today? How many of y'all would raise your hand and say, Pastor, that is me. I want to see the power of God at work in my life. I presuppose that you do. So as we come to this series, we will say over and over again, the mighty power of God is, is always at work. And man, I presuppose that I, I want this power loose in me 
and working to the uttermost. That brings us to this. Fourthly, our paradigms. So what are these spiritual catalysts? What are those things that always seem to move the hand of God in your life? What are those things that elicit his power and his might in all arenas of life and in every situation today? Ed referred to it. We're going to look at what the first catalyst, the one you're going to have to have, is faith. If you've got a copy of the Word, open it up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. This is a marvelous chapter. It tells about the heroes. It's been dubbed that the heroes of the faith. And in the midst of this marvelously written high chapter containing deep and wide things of God, Men and women of God, we see two verses that I want to consider tucked in that will help us understand how we can best exercise our faith in church. If you want to see God get moving, and if you want to see God get excited, start acting in faith. And he will do it every time. I'm going to read verse 1, and I'm going to read verse 6 in your hearing of Hebrews chapter 11. It says this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And it is the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6 says this. After he talks about Enoch who walked with God and never died. He was just walking one day and the Lord said, Listen, let's just keep on going. I'll walk you right on into the portals of glory. And so he did. He never tasted death. He just followed after God that closely. And look what it says in synopsis of him being that pleasing to God. Verse 6 says this. But without faith, it is... Say this word out loud with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is... And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Three things I want to give you concerning this catalyst of faith. A couple of them quickly. I'm going to try to get to the end and preach a couple of them to you if I can. A little more extensively. Number one, it's important to know the definition of faith. It's important. Verse one, man, that's the quintessential definition of faith. Everybody in the scripture, rightfully so, points to Hebrews 11.1 1, so that we can gain an understanding of what it means to define faith. Twenty-five times, listen to me, in this chapter alone, the word faith is used. And right here he begins by telling us about it so we'll understand what he's talking about as he goes through this chapter. He says that faith is, and he uses two key words. He first of all calls faith substance. That means this, the assurance of or the absolute confirmation of all of our hopes. You know that faith always operates beyond your understanding? It always does. It takes faith. Why? Because God doesn't operate the way we operate. He doesn't think the way we think. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we have to have faith to be able to, to lay hold to those things that we don't even understand. And he's saying faith here is the substance, the assurance, the confirmation of all the things that we hope for. The second word that he uses is evidence. That means this, the obvious an indisputable proof. That means faith has been tested and tried in the past. And we've seen that it has proven true every time. That it has proven out to be worthy when placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying man faith is that obvious and indisputable proof of things we don't even yet see. Faith always not only goes beyond our understanding. It always goes beyond the limitations of what we can see. 
Because we place our faith in one who's already seen tomorrow, who's already been there and knows what's going to happen at every hand's turn. And faith is that indisputable proof of what's coming tomorrow. But those are wonderful words. Those are high-sounding words. Those are highly theological words. But functionally, in our everyday life, how do we simply and most dearly think of faith? Well, I'll tell you this. For me, faith just means this. It means I really believe it. That's what it means. When you say you have faith, that means I really believe it. That means aside from all else, I mean in spite of everything else, I just really believe it. And folks, that's faith. To be totally, completely, wholeheartedly sold out on something and just say, man, I believe it. That's our operating definition of faith. Secondly, we need to look at the demeanor of faith. There are two things that are really of note here when we consider the demeanor of faith. Number one is this. You have to understand that faith has an opposite. Faith has a polar opposite that's at work in this world. Faith has a polar opposite that's at work in our hearts and our lives today. And it's one word. It's doubt. The polar opposite of faith is doubt. If the enemy can get you to, to doubting and questioning, man, he has won the victory in your life in that moment. He has robbed you of everything that God might have done. Doubt always stands in opposition to faith. We read of these heroes of the faith that they had to overcome doubt on every hand's turn. In Romans, it said that Abraham staggered not at the promise. That means this. He didn't doubt for an instant that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. Jesus teaches us this. Ask believing and not doubting and you will receive. He's acknowledging that, that, that war, that balance that's there, that, that altercation that's taking a place between faith and doubt in your life. Jesus said to his disciples on one occasion, where is your faith? Why is it that you stand here doubting? Where is your faith? And I can't count the times in my own experience with him that I've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit whisper in my ear, Son, where is your faith? Why are you doubting and worrying over these things? Jesus said, Man, I couldn't even do many mighty works in my hometown. Why? Because of their unbelief and their doubt. It limited the work and the power of God in their midst. James teaches us this. That earthly trials are trials of faith. That's what he calls them. And you see, I'm here to tell you today, the enemy is not interested in your family. The enemy's not really interested in your finances. The enemy's not really interested in your physical well-being. What the enemy is interested in is your faith. And if he can use those things as a tool to assault your faith and to take it from you, my, he has done a great thing in your life. Why? Because it nullifies that power of God that's always at work in your life. Faith has an opposite. Secondly, and under the demeanor, we have to consider this. Faith has an object as well. Faith has an object. Faith always believes in something. And I'm here to tell you that every person who lives and breathes has a faith. They believe in something, somewhere, somehow, in some way. They have an object which they depend upon and which they really believe in. They have a concept or a way of thinking that they really trust. Everyone in this world has it, and they fall back on it absolutely all the time, the object of their faith. I used to watch a lot of NBA basketball. I don't watch so much anymore, but I used to watch quite a bit of it. Now, I guess the most successful coach by far of our era was a guy named Phil Jackson. Y'all ever heard of a guy named Phil Jackson? Anybody out there won a whole bunch of championships?
championships, man. People uh, tout him for his, his, his understanding of how to, how to play basketball, the triangle offense, all this stuff they, they attribute to Phil Jackson, and they extol his coaching ability. Every time you saw him, he was cool, calm, and collected. Pandemonium could be going on. It didn't seem like he was in the same building. There he was, looking like he didn't have a care in the world. He won a whole bunch of championships, and people say, wow, man alive, he's never stressed. He was always calm. What a coach. What a man. What a winner. Well, let me tell you, there was a reason that he won a whole bunch of championships, and there was a reason that he was calm, cool, and collected. One is that he coached the Chicago Bulls. They had a particular player named Michael Jordan. How many of y'all ever, hey, hey, I think I could have coached that team pretty well with him and Scottie Pippen and all that other crew. Can you imagine when he called a timeout at the end of the game and had to have a basket? I never saw him wringing his hands. Why? He wasn't hunting for a play to send in. All he was doing was calling them over and say, boys, we're just going to do what we've always done. We're going to give the ball to Michael and we're going to sit back and watch him do what he's always done. That's not too difficult. You don't have to wring your hands. You'll win an awful lot of ball games making that kind of decision. No doubt when Michael retired, a funny thing happened. He retired. I mean, oh, hey, hey. He decided that maybe he wasn't supposed to be coaching the Bulls anymore. We made a monumental decision, real tough, I'm sure, to fly across to the West Coast and coach another little ball team called the L.A. Lakers. How many of y'all ever heard of a player named Kobe Bryant? How about Shaquille O'Neal? I can't imagine all those championships that he won there. Man, when he, when he had to have a basket and the game was on the line, what a privilege to call a timeout and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. I've got a novel idea. We'll just give the ball to Kobe and let him do what he's always done, score and win the game. Again, I believe I could have won an awful lot of ball games, maybe not a championship, but an awful lot of ball games coaching players such as that. Kobe got injured. Things got a little rocky. Surprise, surprise. Phil decided, I, I think it's time for me to walk out into the sunset. Why? Because he had some objects of faith on the floor all the time that he completely trusted to be able to do what they had always done. Well, beloved, the object of the faith of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is much greater than anybody named Michael or anybody named Kobe. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's the sovereign God of this universe that we trust. In verse 6, he says it over and over. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, he is the object of our faith this day. Faith always has an object. Chapter 11 is full of people who just decided to make Jehovah God the object of their faith above all else and in spite of all else. I wrote a few thoughts down. They believe God and His promise, His word and His purpose in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of the opposition to Him, in spite of the contrary evidence. They believed it in spite of the cost. And let me tell you folks, there is a cost when you begin to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You mark it down every time. It's going to bring some stuff into your life that's hard to bear. They trusted and believed God in spite of the impossibility of a barren womb. How about Sarah? Her womb was 
barren and dead. She was an old lady, but she staggered not. She said, hey, I believe that God can bring back to life again that thing that was barren. Why? Because he told me so. And she stood on the promise of the Lord. They believed in spite of the implausibility of a coming storm. Tony Evans tells us that Noah preached the shortest sermon for the longest period of time and recorded history. And here's what it was. It's going to rain. How many of y'all hear what I'm saying? Hey, nobody bought into that. Why? Because it never rained before. And it was implausible to think that something like that was ever going to happen in the future. But in spite of his own misunderstandings and in spite of his own, I'm sure, uncertainty of what God was doing, Noah stood on the promise of God. And when the rains came, God himself shut the ark and he found Noah and himself preserved just as God had promised him inside that ark. In spite of the impregnability of a fortified city, they trusted God. God told Joshua, if you want to take Jericho, here's how you do it. You just go out and march around it seven times for seven days. And man, at the end of it, just blow your trumpets and blow your horns and shout and the walls will fall down. Well, any general that came up with that plan would be surely supplanted and replaced by somebody else who had more sense than that. But the people said, look, we'll just believe God. And Joshua said, God, I just believe you. And the word tells us at the end of those days what happened. When they blew their trumpets and sounded the horn, the walls of the city fell flat at Joshua's feet and they were able to take all the spoil that God had promised them. They disregarded cost. They disregarded loss. They disregarded isolation. They disregarded interrogation. They flinched not at the threats, the torture, and the incarceration. And beloved, they were more than willing to give their very lives if that's what the plan and purpose of God demanded from them. They just believed God. And said, we will stand with you as the object of our faith, no matter what. What's our definition? Here it is. Faith is this. I really believe it. What's the demeanor of faith? Well, we have to understand it has an opposite that combats against it. We have to overcome and be on the lookout for its doubt. What's the object of it? We've got to understand that we have to place our faith rightly. It could be anywhere. But the best place is in God himself, his person, his plan, and his promise. And he has proven himself faithful time and time again. Thirdly. I want you to see the demands of faith, and I'll see if I can share these with you quickly. Look in verse 6. To interject the catalyst of faith into your lives and your experience, you must consider what I call the demands. Number one, we've got to understand the necessity of faith. We've got to understand the necessity of faith. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, without faith, and there's that word I had you say out loud. It is, what is that word? Say it again. Impossible. Please. You, you can't even come near it without faith. Is faith a necessity? Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to, to, to take a bunch of boys down to, to camp. Started out as a camper myself and graduated up into an assistant and then a counselor and on and on. I remember one time I, I had a cabin full of boys and we had a ritual that, that the whole camp would do. We'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and they'd blow, they'd blow the Reveille trumpet and there we'd come rolling them boys out of those, out of those bunks and we'd herd them down to the flagpole and sometimes there'd be somebody's britches up there and you never know what you're going to see. We'd herd them down to the flagpole and, and man, we'd have them recite the, the pledges. We'd have them sing a few songs. We'd, we'd have a devotional thought and after this we'd, we'd have a time of schedule, tell them where they needed to be today and what they were going to do and man, then we'd usher them inside to eat. On about the third morning, I never will 
we'll forget it. I had a little boy sit up on the edge of his bunk, and as he was rubbing his eyes at 6 a.m., he looked over at me and he said, Stacy, is this absolutely necessary? What we do every morning, is this absolutely necessary? He said this, can't we find God at 9 a.m. instead of 6? I mean, he was thinking logically. Why are we getting up at 6 o'clock? God's outside time. He's not on any schedule. I'm sure he'll be there if we waited till 9. Is this a necessity? And you see, in life we ask ourselves, is faith a necessity? And the answer is this, absolutely Faith is something we cannot go without. Why? We can't even think about pleasing God. We can't even think about being satisfying to God. Much less have His mighty power at work in us aside from anything but faith. I want you to note this. No matter what else we talk about in this series, no matter what other catalysts we come across, faith is above them all, beloved. For without faith, none of them mean a thing. Without belief in God, just I really believe it. Let me tell you, none of the rest will be effective in your life. This is the most necessary thing. You need to settle that in your mind. Doesn't the word over and over and over say this? The just shall live. You can finish that, I bet you. By faith. Over and over. This is a faith deal we're in, beloved. And we just have to walk believing, really believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see faith. We see its necessity. Also, we want you to see its, its nature underneath these demands. There are two basic things that faiths always and must believe. If we plan on having God active and alive in our heart, here are the activation truths, I will say, the two things we must believe that will get Him more excited and move His hand in our life than any others. Number one, they're very clear in the Scripture. You can pick them right out. Look in the latter part of verse 6 in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, He that cometh to God, here's that necessity, must believe, first of all, that He, what? Preacher, what does that mean? That means that he really exists. It's that simple. You have to say, you know what? He really is out there. How many of y'all believe he really exists today? That he really is out there? There's a bunch of TV shows on now that, uh, man, they search for things that are uh, mythical and theoretical, trying to, to find some kind of proof and prove their existence beyond a shadow of a doubt. Some of those searchers are sold on it. Some of those searchers are scoffers, I must say. Skeptics, I guess you would call them. They're searching for the Loch Ness Monster. If you watch Shark Week on TV, they always search for this, this ancient prehistoric shark called the Megalodon. How many of y'all will say you watched that? Yeah, I did. I watched that. Don't watch it if you ever want to go to the beach again. You'll never get back in the water. I'll just tell you that. 60-foot-long prehistoric shark they're trying to say that it exists. One of my favorite shows on TV right now is Finding Bigfoot. How many of y'all right here in the presence of the Lord will say you've ever watched Finding Bigfoot? See, some of y'all won't admit it. Man, I'm telling you, I watch that thing all the time. I can't hardly miss an episode. I can hear my wife every time that it comes on, a brand new episode. I'll cut it on TV and she will just sigh very deeply over there and say, Are we really going to sit here and out? And watch people searching in the dark for something that's not out. Are we really going to do that? I mean, how many times can you watch this stuff? I mean, they have very elaborate ways of trying to find it. They have men knocks. They take ball bats and hit trees. They figure it out. That's how they communicate back and forth. They, they make yelps and calls. And then they have these infrared cameras just hoping to catch a glimpse of him. Listen, I'm hooked on it. I can't miss an episode. Why? Because they might find him. Hey, hey I don't want to not watch the one time. That they find the guy out there. 
Now I will tell you, on some level, to search for him, you have to be a believer. You can't be a scholar. I, I got to admit, you say, do you believe it? Well, I'm going to tell you, there's some level I must. And you know why? Because there's some nights when it's really late and I'm taking Sophie out at the head of Die Leaf Lane for her last walk before she goes in the crate. I'm standing out there with her in the dark, just looking around, and every now and then I'll give one of those shouts. go, oh. And then I just listen. I mean, hey, hey, just hoping. Even my dog looks at me like, have you lost your ever-loving mind? What are you doing? She's a little skeptical, too. Folks, we've got to believe that he exists. And folks, you don't have to search far to find proof and evidence that he does. You can find it in the world around you. This creation declares his existence. The word says this, man, creation declares the glory of the Lord and His firmament, His mighty power. This didn't just happen. There's just no way this happened. I'm somewhat of a scientist. My undergraduate work is in that realm. So I, I love scientific things and the scientific model and the scientific approach. Chemistry, not so much, but the rest of it. Yeah, I, I like that kind of thinking. And man, I, I, I keep up with the trends of the day. And man, I'll tell you this. Uh, there's not a reputable scientist. There's an organization called IEEE. They have this gathering of all these engineers and physicists and scientists and they will tell you that today there's not a really reputable scientist left in the world that doesn't believe that there's something out there that started all of this stuff. Now they might not say that it's the God of the Bible but they will say something had to be out there. A catalyst, a cause for all this to be here just like it is. It's just impossible. The probabilities are far too out of whack. And beloved, I'm here to tell you today the Lord himself proves himself in creation but he's proven himself over and over to me personally in my life. How do I know it's him, beloved? Because he has shown up time after time after time in my life. The word says, hey, test me, trust me, and I'll prove myself to you that I am who I am and that I do what I say in your midst. I have never trusted the Lord that he has not proven himself faithful and righteous to me. And that underscores in my heart the fact that I know he exists today. I love the words of the old hymn, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living. Whatever men may say, why, I see His hand of mercy and I hear His voice of cheer and just the time I need Him, what does it say? He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Why? Because He walks with me and He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. What? Salvation to impart. You ask me, how I know and I'm convinced that he lives. Why? He lives within my heart. Listen, you don't have to search for trying today. Testing today. Asking to show himself to you. And be ready to see and he will prove to you. The start is to understand that we must believe, first of all, that he is, secondly. We must also believe if we ever expect to activate the mighty power of God in our life, we must believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Is, that, that verb is, He is a rewarder. Is means this, He proves Himself to be over and over. Rewarder means this, someone who gives blessing and favor. Diligently seek means this, those who want Him more than the reward. 
Those who want him more than the reward. Those who just love him and are drawn and driven to him by the faith that's inside them. If you were ever going to choose who to go shopping with in my household and you were choosing between my mom and my dad, man, that was a hands-down, no-brainer, easy choice to make. You always take dad. Always. Why? Dad could be manipulated. I'm just honest with you. You could manipulate mom, but dad, you could manipulate a little bit. No, mom. See, dad had some traits in his life that you could take full advantage of. One of them is he's impatient. He's just as impatient as anybody out there. He can't, Jerry's back there. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, hey, he's impatient, but he can't be still in one space for more than 10 seconds. He's got to be moving on, man. You pass him walking at the mall today, he'll say hey to you, but he ain't going to talk to you. Why? He's got something to do. He's got an agenda, and he's not going to stop. Man, I can remember standing in the, the big toy box at Sears with two things in my hand, and Dad saying, son, pick one, and let's get it and go, and me just standing there in my great wisdom that only a seven or eight year old boy can have understanding that man I don't really have to choose if I wait long enough I'd say something like well dad I, I don't know which one I want and I, I don't want to make a decision because I regret it when I get in the car and after about five or six of those interchanges he'd finally say just get them both and let's get out of here that's what he would say to you <laughs> couldn't take it mom not so much dad yes I tell you, we try to manipulate God sometimes, don't we? We try to even use the Word of God to manipulate Him into doing what it is we want Him to do. But what He's saying right here is, I'm a rewarder of those who don't resort to that tactic. I'm a rewarder of those who just seek me with all their heart. See, it wasn't until much later in life that I realized that the greatest gifts I'd ever get from my father came just because he was my father and because he loved me and because I loved him. And beloved, most of the priceless, precious things he ever poured into my life, I never really even knew I needed them until I had them. And you see, your heavenly father is just looking for a group of people today they will say, God, I just want you. I just want to be around you. I just want to know you. I just want to relate to you. I just want to be your daughter and have you be my father. I just want to be your son and have you be my father. Understanding that when you have him, beloved, you have every ounce of his mercy. You have every ounce of his grace. And you have every ounce of his goodness. And you have every ounce of his favor that anybody could ever hope to have. You say, Pastor, should we never pray? No. And we should pray. The Lord invites us to do that. But I'm here to tell you, I believe when I get to glory, I'm going to find out that the things I really needed God gave me just because he was God and I was his son walking with him on this planet he is a rewarder of those beloved who just begin to diligently seek after him what is faith well his definition is this I just really believe it if you want to move the hand of God you start just really believing him you want to see something mighty happen in your life just get to believe in God. Folks, if we want to see the power of God unleashed in a mighty way in this church, let's just start believing God. Let's start taking Him at His word. Let's start listening to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. 
understanding that it'll never glorify us, but it'll lift high the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll bring great profit to the kingdom through what he does as a result of that faith. We hope you've been blessed by today's message. If you'd like to find out more about Trinity of Fairview, visit us online at trinityoffairview.org or call 828-628-1188.